You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 31. I want you to take the pill and see what is the effect, and the same you not to take the pill at the same time and see the effect, but they cannot do that. It's, it's a fundamental problem in causality. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, welcome everyone. Got some good news. Um, I've got some time off, so I'm going to be able to focus on upgrading this podcast a little bit over the next few weeks. Uh, Hopefully you'll see a new website, but maybe I can go a little further than that. Who knows? Um, So let's jump into it today because today I have an incredibly important episode for all of you who are trying to navigate the world, trying to make good decisions when everyone is trying to push you into doing things a certain way, uh, try to figure out what to believe, what to put, push back on. And, you know, I think about it this way. Do you feel like you're being bombarded with, like, arguments all day that urge you to take some action because that action will cause something good to happen? Or vice versa, maybe don't do something because something bad's going to happen? I mean, advertisers, for one. So they'll cite a study, maybe, and you'll say, oh, that sounds real smart. Well, sometimes, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's bogus. And, you know, what about the politicians? They're going to tell you that their policies are going to have a certain effect on your life. But once the policy is implemented, you can't go back and, like, not implement it at that time and see what the difference is. So the fact is, it's very easy to find justifications for almost anything you want to do if you don't have anything to compare the result to. So it's it's something to keep your eye on. Now, if you think that some of the stats on what you're being sold uh, through advertisements are a little bit uh, you know, off, you might say, well, at least they know with perfect accuracy how to tailor their message and target their advertisements to me. I mean, I got to give them that. But you'd be surprised that in many cases, advertisers don't really know whether they're getting you to buy stuff with their ads. And so that's what I'm working on now. And one of the reasons why I joined this particular team at Foursquare is to build expertise on the subject of causality because with all the information out there, understanding what causes what uh, is really key and it's becoming more and more important as, as we'll see today. And also a lot of what's in the news, I mean, think about it. You know, everybody is worried about a few Facebook ads uh, meddling in our elections, but did these ads change anyone's vote? You know, there's no evidence of that. There couldn't be. It's a secret ballot. It's not like a bunch of, you know, fake news hackers are sitting there doing exit polls. So um, these are important questions to raise. So I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. So let's actually get to the interview today. To hash it all out, uh, I'm going to be talking to Shirin Mojarad, who is currently a lead data scientist at McGraw-Hill Education up in Boston. Her expertise is in navigating and deriving insights from large data sets and analyzing behavioral patterns using advanced statistical modeling and data mining techniques. Shirin's expertise lies in drawing causal inferences in observational studies and applying machine learning to the field of causal inference, which she has applied at McGraw-Hill Education and published in international conferences. Very important to determine whether our educational efforts are working or not. Uh, Sharon received her PhD from Newcastle University in the UK, where she specialized in predictive modeling and artificial neural networks. Sharon is the founder and leader of three Boston-based meetup groups, 
and leads workshops in her field. So she's my subject matter expert. Shirin, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thank you, Max. I'm really excited to be on this show. I've been listening to your previous episodes and um, the topics you're in, you're dis- you've been discussing are very interesting. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm very happy to have you on the show today for a topic that is, I guess, near and dear to my heart right now, which is what causes what, which is uh, a problem that I've been struggling with uh, for the last two years here at Foursquare. Um, but first thing I want to do is I want to understand a little bit about your background because you know, it looks like today we're working on some similar problems and have similar professional interests. You are the lead data scientist at McGraw-Hill up in Boston. You got your PhD in the UK. Uh, you, you were born in Iran, is that right, Iran? Yes. You, uh, and, and you grew up there? Yes. So tell me, like, what were your interests growing up and what took you all the way to the UK and, and how did you end up at McGraw-Hill in Boston? Um. It's actually a very interesting question. No one has asked me what happened from Iran to U.S. Um, it it was all um, really one step at a time. Um, I got interested in, in one specific thing. I followed it and it just led to another. But um, just going back to my high school time or even um, I would say middle school, I was, um, and it's a very, um, it sounds like a stereotype, but I loved math. In the sense that I did not, I was not conscious about it, that I didn't realize that I love math. I just liked doing problems. Um, I was always really good at it. And I was never really studying math for an exam because in the class I was 100% present. I would usually understand everything and come home and I was so excited to do some more problems. and, And even like I would come up with my own problems and go back to the instructor. And sometimes they were like, I don't know. Um, so that, that's my high school. And for me, it was, it was really natural to go into engineering because I loved math. But at the, at the same time, I, I really liked the hands-on part of things. I, I never liked the pure math for the sake of um, doing math. Um, so I did biomedical engineering in my undergraduates. And uh, for my final project, me being super lazy, I was like, I don't want to build anything because in, in case it doesn't work, I don't want to spend next year of my life doing my undergraduate project. So I, I decided to do something on, in, um, on the side, on the software side. And I found this um, really cool prof who had done um, a lot of work on image processing and I got interested in that. And I started working with him, really learning everything from scratch. I did not like have any view into, oh, you can convert an image into numbers and work with those numbers. And at the time, it was really just a statistical analysis of mammogram images, MRIs, um, to find um, um, small lesions in breast to see if they are um, benign or um, potentially cancerous. You were doing this research as an undergrad? Yes, as an undergrad. And I think one thing that I think um, I like about Iran as education in Iran and don't like about it is that it's highly theoretical, but very advanced. Um, So the math I studied in high school, I studied similar math in my master's in UK. And I was like, oh, I know a lot of these things. (laughs) Um, Give give me an example. Like what's a, what's a level that would be, uh, you know, taught in, in, at the college level in the UK and then at high school in Iran? So I, I, I don't know the college level because I was not there, but in my master's, I was doing All communications right, and uh, right. signal processing, and okay. it's very heavy in statistics and probabilities. 
And I remember that it was just so easy. Like a lot of students were struggling. And for me, it was like, like I had a really good base. And one thing in Iran is that if you cannot pass your course, there's no way you can enter university. And passing the course means that you, you, you're really good at it. And I think, um, I don't know if you, if you know about Maryam Mirzakhani, like, I think that's why there are a lot of successful Iranians um, in academy, a, a, academy in, um, in U.S. Well, sure, I have. But for the, let's, for, for the audience, she uh, is uh, a um, mathematician, an Iranian mathematician, a woman who won the Fields Medal recently yeah. and unfortunately yeah. passed away. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite recently, a very young age, yeah. uh, but uh, quite uh, quite an impressive um, quite an impressive uh, uh, achievement there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's uh, and so yeah, that's why I kind of want to know, you know, <laughs> why are there so many? <laughs> I didn't want to come out yeah. and say, it, but why are there so many, you know, amazing mathematicians who are who are Iranian? Or, yeah, um, mathematicians. I would also say engineers. Uh, but o overall, it's because um, we learn a lot of theoretical um, concepts in high school and, and even undergrad that um, are amongst more advanced topics in um, in U.S. and um, and Europe. And yeah. um, it's it's great in the sense that we have such strong background. It's not good in the sense that, for example, in my undergraduate. It was not until my final project that I learned independent thinking. And it was always fed to me in terms of here's the book, here are the problems, here are the solutions, go learn it, come do the exam. So I knew right. it inside and out. But then can I do it? Like I, I, I really learned those skills on my own during my um, undergraduate project and mostly during my PhD. I was left with this whole um, project that I was I was basically on my own, no curriculum, and that's where I learned a lot of those skills. I didn't learn them in a school in Iran. Wow, wow. Well, I think we, I think uh, I have some takeaway from that, which is, I mean, a lot of people say that that our mathematics, well, particularly in the younger years, which is you know, is a lot of criticism on how people kind of associate math with sort of you know rote computation, which unfortunately I think a, a lot of our teachers you know, maybe, well, in some cases, they don't understand it themselves. And in some mm -hmm. cases, they're kind of pushed into teaching it that way. That's, that's true. I think one thing that I, um, I'm struggling to understand about education in the U.S., and I'm working in education center sector, is that math is a thing. Like in Iran, no one ever talked about it as a thing. You just studied like any other subject, like, like you do arts, like you do uh, PE. You do math, and you do physics, sure. and you do chemistry. It was not a topic of discussion that math is hard, or math is not for women. Or, oh, I um, see. Like, it, it never occurred to me that it's a thing. That's why I'm saying it never occurred to me that I love math. It was just like one of the courses and I was, that I happened to be good at it. That's it. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I cannot grasp, but um, it's probably because I did not grow up in the U.S., and I, did, I, didn't, I don't know how it is handled in high schools or schools in general yeah yeah and well i don't have a grasp on it either because i had you know i had my experience um which was it was a good, pretty good experience uh, you know it, but it wasn't uh it was at a it was at a public school it wasn't probably that far out of the main out of the um typical but i have a feeling that if i look around the country um 
I would find something very different. I don't know. That, that was just a word salad. But <laughs> I guess I'm saying it's, a, it's an interesting topic that yeah. I could spend a whole show on. Yeah, um, probably or multiple shows. Um, let's so not. Let's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's. Uh, so we talked about how you got into statistics with the MRI. How did you first become interested in machine learning? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think I, I, I cannot pinpoint a, a, a specific time, but um, in my uh, during my master's project, I was um, so I was very intrigued by the application of um, um, statistics and mathematics in um, in real world problems and specifically in breast cancer prediction. That was um, I was I was also it was very close to to heart for me because my mom went through that. And she was diagnosed with, with breast cancer. Went under uh, a surgery. She was she did not have the the cancer. We were very happy. But then after that, I realized that there should be other ways um, to to know that this was a false positive, and not on like we, we didn't need to go through all those um, um, anxieties and um, the surgery. Um, so it was close to my heart, but also it was very interesting that I can apply math and the statistics to get uh, to understand um, and to basically dissect a real world problem through data. Um, yeah. So my, my master's, I looked into neural networks and at the time um, I was really, um, I cannot, naive in the sense that I was like, oh, there, here's this cool technique, let's apply and see how it works. And it worked pretty well. I Now that I look back, I don't think I, I really understood the gist of it, but that was my master's project. In my PhD, I went back to basic and I was like, okay, so this was neural networks, but um, what about um, more simple um, techniques like logistic regression, just simple um, um, statistical analysis. And that's where I really got into it. Um, I studied like a lot of this, um, statistical analysis techniques. Um, I studied decision trees, support vector machines, neural networks in a lot more depth. And um, and I think that was that was the time that I got into machine learning. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it opens up. Uh, so similar to me, but slightly different, because you came at it from looking into statistics and into machine learning, where I was kind of more, um, you know, came at it from more of a computer science angle, but sort of similar, I think. Um, I wanted to ask you, and this was um, a, a suggested question someone else suggests they ask, ask you, because in a previous episode, we talked about the idea of big data versus big algorithm. Big algorithm, you asked me what that is. It's not really a term that's being used. I kind of just made it up. But big data is this idea that I was taught maybe 10 years ago. Not I was taught, but more like that's what everyone in the industry said, that like mm -hmm. to improve your machine learning applications, don't worry about the algorithm, just get more data. And if you research better algorithms, it's not gonna, uh, it's not gonna matter. You just need more and more and more data. And I was questioning this recently on the show. You know, we have so much data now mm -hmm. <laughs> in most cases on whether that might be changing with algorithm research uh, sometimes being a better return on investment. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, this is actually a very interesting um, topic in the sense that this is like this um, these few years are the best time to discuss this topic. Um, Andrew Eng, um, the one of the co-founder of Coursera, he has a really fame um, um, good chart which is uh, fairly famous. I wish I could show it in this. He shows on the x-axis as data increases and on the on the y-axis 
um, how much um, return we can get from this data. And he discusses that with traditional machine learning techniques, there is a point that even with more data, you cannot get uh, better performance um, with your model. There is just like there is a certain point that you cannot optimize your model further than that. And with the small neural networks, you get better models, but still with a lot of data, you cannot get that much return on um, like improvement in the model. And it's only with deep learning models that we realize the power of big data. So I think it's it's really about in best case scenario, we want to have big data and build big algorithms in terms of like optimized, refined deep neural networks. Um, but at the same time, um, now with deep learning techniques, we can even work with smaller data sets. And it's actually a, a topic um, these days to, um, to create models from um, small set of labeled images. Yeah, and there's a lot of benefits to working with a smaller data set. I mean, one, you know, it's, there's a lot of problems that go away. Like you don't have to do all this, you know, sharding. You don't have to do. You don't have to worry about all the problems with, you know, trying to, you know, trying mm -hmm. to load everything into memory. All that stuff. I agree. It, uh, I, I think it it really depends on the application. Um, having had uh, experience in healthcare and now being in education, I think there is a huge benefit to having that huge amount of data in the sense that. When it comes to, especially in education, social sciences, um, everything is so irrational and unpredictable that only with m more data you can have a chance of um, finding a, a model that, you, that could generalize well enough um, for you. But I think, like in, especially in image processing and audio uh, uh, processing, this could be a huge advantage to have a big algorithm versus a big data. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into causality in general, I want to ask about the specific problem that you were working on with respect to the article of yours that I read about yeah. efficacy in education. So you were mm -hmm. studying the effects of something called uh, ALEKS, A-L-E-K-S. So first of all, what is ALEKS and what were you trying to find out about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, ALEKS stands for Assessment and Learning Knowledge Spaces. And um, it's basically an online adaptive learning system. Adaptive learning. That means yes. you use it, you learn from it, you answer some questions, and then it changes what it's teaching you based on your performance on those questions. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, and that's where the name com comes from, which is assessment and learning in knowledge spaces. Um, so it is, um, as you mentioned, you had a really good uh, description, a set of assessments and then based on that assessment, um, the, the system knows what you know, what you're, you don't know, and what you're actually ready to learn. Um, so it's a self-paced system, and it, it could um, hugely decrease the time students spend on problems because they don't need to learn everything if they, they already know it. At the same time, they only learn what they're ready to learn, and they're, they're not um, under-challenged or over-challenged. Right, which is really nice because that happens a lot in schools when you have 20, 30 kids in a class and you have to go at one pace. Exactly, exactly. So the idea is to resemble one-to-one -one instruction, basically, uh, but to scale it such that everyone can use the, the system. All right. And what were you trying to prove about Alex? 
Um, so, or um, at least show. I hate to use the word prove because prove, I'm always yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that when I when I hear people say that word, the alarm bells ring off. But uh, <laughs> you you get the point. Yeah. Um, so uh, at McGraw Hill uh, Education, Al- Alex is one of our products, and a lot of schools use that. I don't have the exact uh, number of users, but um, it has a big user base. And one of the things that is very important in education, especially with all these new products and technologies, is that does this work? And um, and this uh, this has been studied in Alex and other products um, for a long time. Alex has a lot of uh, what we call efficacy studies, um, meaning that studies that prove that the system is actually helping students to improve their learning outcomes. Um, but the specific question that came to me two years ago was um, a community college that was piloting it and uh, the system, and they wanted to know that if it specifically works for them. They were a smaller college um, in Midwestern U.S., and they believed that they have a different population of students, and such a study doesn't exist out there to show that Alex works. And that simple question, does Alex work? That was what they came um, to us with. And did they have, a, what was their definition of work? Like, how are they measuring it? Um, so they are measuring it. That's a really good question. They're using Alex for developmental math courses, and they're measuring it by number of students uh, or basically percentage of students who pass those courses. Um, they had four developmental math courses, and they, had, uh, they, had to, they, they were piloting the system. So a set of classes were using Alex. And um, they also had a final exam independent of Alex that uh, students would take to to pass um, the course, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I read the paper and it's a, um, you know, it's a little bit maybe too technical to go into all the little details here on this show. But I just the uh, the gist of it was you found out that it it did work in this situation. Yes, it um, it actually improved, um, has a big improvement in pass rates and it came out as significant. Okay, cool. So rather than going into the full list of, you know, methodology on how it is that you showed that, uh, I want my audience to take away a few simple concepts that they that they can get to understand a little bit about how causality works. Like, how do you show that A causes B? So here are three concepts that I want to dive into. And I think if people understand these three concepts, they're going to have something they're going to get something valuable out of this podcast episode. Mm-hmm. If you're a machine learning engineer, you'll be able to take away how to do something more advanced. Or if you're just a student or you know somebody who's not in the field, you'll be able to use these concepts to you know, uh, understand news articles and things in TV that you see. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first question is, uh, what is the difference between a randomized control trial and an observational study? And which one were you doing? Mm-hmm. Um. So to explain that, I will, so one thing is that it's a randomized control trial experiment and an observational study is also another form of experiment. So I, I will go back to the basic and explain what is an experiment. Yes. And um, an experiment is basically a, pro- a procedure that we, uh, we carry out to support or validate our hi- hypothesis about a phenomenon. Um, so it could be, for example, uh, manipulating a particular factor and observing what happens in the outcome. And um, I'm going to take a very simple example and, and use it throughout. Let's say I have come up with a new drug for weight loss. This is, it's this pill okay. you take, you lose weight. 
and I want to see um, whether it, whether it works. Um, so the manipulation that I'm doing in the environment is that I have a group of I have you and I take the pill, and then I, I will observe if we actually lose weight or not. All and right. um, in this good. process, we're hoping to also get in, insight into cause and effect by observing what outcome happens when we ma- manipulate a particular factor. So I want to, to come to, to a causal uh, conclusion that the pill that I have come up with actually helps um, causes you and I to lose weight. Right. And it could have been we would have lost weight anyway. Exactly. Exactly. You got or maybe we, yeah. maybe we would have lost more if we hadn't taken the pill. Exactly. Maybe you the pill just sits there and adds a few ounces, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you got to the gist of it. So that's um, um, that's why these these kind of studies are not um, trivial. Yeah. Um, so to to come to the to uh, to get insight into cause and effect. Um, I want to, to run experiments that include controls. And these experiments are designed to minimize the effect of variables other than the, than, than the single variable that I'm looking into. And by variable, I mean the, the pill, for example. So one concept that's really important here is what we call confounder in, um, in such experiments. So it happens that besides taking the pill, there are so many other um, characteristics that could uh, affect um, my weight loss. How much do I exercise? What do I eat? Um, what is my BMI? What is my gender? What is my age? Um, so as you mentioned, it might be that I lose weight by taking the pill, but if I had not taken the pill, I would have lost weight anyways, or even I would have lost more weight than I did with the pill. And um, that's what we call the fundamental uh, uh, problem of um, causality. It's the fact that I would like to see the effect of my experiment on one subject. Um, um, Let's say the pill. I want you to take the pill and see what is the effect and the same you not to take the pill at the same time and see the effect. But I cannot do that. It's it's a fundamental uh, uh, problem um, in in causality. And that's what, what makes drawing cause and effect relationships really difficult in experimental studies. Yeah, yeah. So now back to randomized control trials. Um, so we know what is experiment. We know what is controls, uh, controlled experiments. I basically want um, to take a group, have them use um, my pill, and see if it works or not. Um, now my problem is that how do I know that this group would have, um, this group has specific characteristics, basically, that make them lose weight anyways. And that's why I do randomization. And um, randomization basically means that to select that control group and select that um, treatment group, um, I'm random, randomly assigning subjects to these two groups. And by randomization, we assume that um, we're selecting samples that are similar in all their characteristics. And then we assign the treatment to them. Right. Um- Let's go back to where we talked about. So let's, um, before, before, you just described why you'd want to do a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so was this one um, observational or was this a randomized control trial so for this Alex? Is, uh, oh, for, for Alex, it was observational. Right. Um, so, going, so that's why basically we do randomization and that's why there, those studies are called randomized control trials. 
Now, um, I'll, I'll refer to them as RCT because that's just easier or randomized um, studies. Yeah. Um, it's not always ethical um, or logistically possible to run um, randomized studies. The easiest um, and best example is um, does smoking cause cancer? You don't right. want to run a randomized um, study with, with the smoking and cancer. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, I, yeah. I, I was in a uh, conversation once where people kept using that example, does smoking cause cancer as uh-huh. does, does ads cause people to go buy things? And I'm like, so the advertiser is trying to give people as many people cancer as possible? Is that, you know, <laughs> the, the uh, it was weird because the, uh, the analogy was, you know, the opposite. It was something very good to, or for the advertiser, I guess, to something very bad. But anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> continue. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, in education, it's it it is also the ethical side of it. Um, I always argue that we believe that Alex works, and we don't want to deprive students of it. The institution comes from the point that no, we we don't know if it works. We don't care, but it's logistically very difficult to design those studies. And um, in in this specific institution, a set of instructors volunteered to pilot the 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 platform and we were like great this is similar to a randomized study and then after the fact i looked at the data and i realized not all the students actually use the system just a part right. of them do and this is very similar to the to this um, weight loss pill um, i'm taking the weight loss pill because i really care about my weight and i'm also exercising and i'm also on a strict diet um, and all these other factors so i would have lost weight anyways and they were arguing that these students who used um, Alex or the system, they're good students to begin with. They put in more time. They care more about um, their final score. And how do I know if it, if it actually works? Um, what if what if they would have passed the course anyways? And yeah. um, that's why um, we needed to to design a study such that it's um, we statistically can. Um, um, can create a study that is similar to a randomized um, experimental study. And um, that's where um, um, matching um, is used. Um, and I call it matching because we basically have a group who used um, the treatment, the system, the pill, and a group who didn't. And we want to make sure that these two groups are, are as similar as possible in all their characteristics, except for the fact that they used or didn't use the treatment. And um, and that's why we match these uh, these two groups such that they're similar. Now, right. Yeah. You want to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. Exactly. Um, and sometimes you can't. So like you said, for example, let's say everyone who took the weight loss pill were also people who were on a diet. And mm-hmm. the people who didn't take the pill were people who were not on a diet. Well, and then let's say the, the group who did lost the weight. Well, was it the diet or the pill? There's really no way of knowing. Exactly. You know, which which yeah. thing caused it. So I guess my second question is, what is a confounding variable? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we already, that's essentially whether you're on a diet or not, or in the case of the education experiment, what do you think were the confounding variables? Those are other things that the, that the people receiving the treatment are doing that could have had the cause that exactly. are not caused by, by yeah. your thing. So in this specific study, an example is that their initial knowledge um, was a confounding variable. What if they, they knew it to begin with and they didn't even need Alex to, to learn it? 
Yeah, yeah. And then I just want to mention one more thing uh, to take away is something called Simpson's paradox, where mm -hmm. basically what it means is that if you have a confounding variable, you could see a negative correlation. You could see, like, saying the pill causing people to gain weight if they did something else, um, even though it has the opposite effect. So it could have, um, you know, that's one reason to be very skeptical of any correlations that you hear, uh, you know, in day-to-day -day life. I always find that people say, um, you know, even if people are smart enough to know that one correlation isn't a causation, you know, even like 10 correlations might not be a causation. There could be a different underlying cause on that. Okay. Anyway, uh, do, do you find that's the case? Do you find that after studying this stuff, you know, you look at news reports and online articles very differently? Because I know I've become much more skeptical and I can't like unsee all of the uh, times where they're just reporting correlations that are sometimes not even statistically significant correlations, like, oh, we looked at like 50 people, um, and that are put out there as fact and that people are kind of expected to believe. Yeah, and that's actually a very good point, yes. And I've got into arguments on that with my, um, um, with my peers and my friends who are also scientists and are doing research in other fields and make causal frame, uh, um, claims in the sense of they use the language of causality and it's, they're actually reporting correlation. And it's so easy to confuse this. We it always, um, we don't even realize it. You might, you might be even um, intending to report correlations, but by mistakenly using the language of causality, you change the whole con concept and um, and what it means. And now yeah. I'm really so. An example is I have. So you're this... you're going one step further, where you're like, oh, other scientists. No, I'm just talking about like friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> so with, with friends and family, I I, I, I like I, I do get um, uh, like alert when I hear something. But yeah. I, I, I try not to mention it. I don't want to. I, I don't oh. want to come across as a nerd. <laughs> no, no. Like I understand. Yeah. You know, it's a very. Like I don't hold it against people for mm -hmm. getting confused by this stuff because it's it's very complicated stuff that very few people have looked into. But I still notice it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But but one thing that I got actually in, into discussion with, I have a friend. Um, who is doing brain research, and they are finding that using Facebook at, um, has adverse um, effects on um, on your uh, like on your emotional health. And I'm always very skeptical um, of how do you how do you know? You just found out that um, using face people who are more on social media, they are more depressed. But then yeah. what if depressed people go on social media to uh, to right. find um, an outlet or find a community to be a part of? What if this social media, this means of, and not necessarily a, a specific one, this means of social media is actually helping them to find a community. And Could that's be why your depression. Exactly. And that's why like a higher percentage of uh, people who, who have depression are on that specific social media. But anyways, um, th that that's was... <laughs> That's an interesting point because we talk about this that sort of thing a lot on the show. So maybe mm -hmm. I'll uh, I'll bring that up at some point. Yeah. Um, do you ever have to sell, or at least explain like the purpose of a causality study to the leadership of your company versus just plain statistical data? Like, how do you get people at McGraw Hill to understand what you're doing? 
Um, so in terms of selling it, no, I don't have to sell it. Um, efficacy studies are an integral in part of um, each of our products. That's very um, good. One thing that I, um, I need to explain is that we do not necessarily need a randomized control trial. Um, and you should be uh, 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 cognizant of the fact that randomized studies in education, they take at least a year and a half to two years. Um, they're very expensive in, in, in the order of 100 um, to, uh, to 300K. And, um, and the sample sizes are usually small because the design is uh, very difficult and logistics are, are not easy to take care of. Experimental study means that we already have all that data. Let's look into it, um, observational studies. And um, that's one thing that I have not had a difficult time to sell in the company. I, I, I did the work, I published the paper, and now I have every team coming to me and saying that, can we do this for, for our product? How did you do it? And trying to understand. Um, and explaining it has been pretty easy because the concept is very easy to understand. It's basically uh, matching those two groups. Um, how do we do it statistically in, um, uh, in terms of, uh, like, uh, on the technical side? That's a different story, but the, the gist of it is very easy to understand. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, it always feels like if you could do a randomized control trial, uh, if it were the same cost, then, yeah, go ahead and do it. But yeah. like you said, the, the cost for these things can be crazy, and we have so much data now. Yeah. You know, so, so much, um, and, you know, you, that's, the, that's why data mining is so hard. Like, you have to dive into it and see, see what it's telling you. It doesn't come out and tell you, but you have to do the studies, and, and you can find out. Exactly. Um, yeah, so when I started uh, looking at the theory behind causality for online advertising, mm -hmm. you know, I was amazed by how a lot of the academic papers that I was reading for this, like, they're just so new and like the mm -hmm. stuff that they're like you know uh, they're quoting stuff or they're 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 citing papers you know from most of these papers are like from the last 20 years 30 years they're citing papers from 50 years before but they're not saying exactly the same thing so like i would have thought that people would have you know discovered how causality works or at least how how to study it you know hundreds of years ago but mm -hmm. um you know, did you find the same thing? Was this surprising to you? Um, I, I, yes, I have observed it. And no, it's not surprising. It, it is and it is not. Um, it is not in the sense that a lot of um, the, a lot of like the, the data revolution is, is very recent. So a lot of this data has been just um, in the past 10, 20 years been accumulated and, um, enable this type of studies. Also, ah, I see. So, so like 50 years ago, you didn't have these data sets to try to suss out this information as much. Exactly, exactly. And another gotcha. thing is that now uh, machine learning um, is also widely used in causal inference. And, um, and the thing is that a lot of these machine learning techniques have been also um, um, devised or improved in the past, um, like in the past 50 years, I would say. So um, yeah. it's, but also historically, I've been um, um, reading a, a prologue by um, Judea Pearl. He's the father of, uh, 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 he's not the father of causal inference, but he's a um, very well-known expert in this field. And he has a, this really um, nice historical um, study of how did it, how did the causality um, uh, 
language, the causal language came into um, our language and how did it start? And at some point he mentions that at um, Pearson's time, um, Pearson came up with the correlation and he basically suppressed any um, language of causality in, in the statistics. And uh, who is states, this? Um, Judea uh, Pearl. No, 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 uh, Pearson. Oh, when, Pearson. When was that? Um, I, I don't want to mention a time. He has it in oh. his prologue. I think it oh, was okay. in 1600 or 1700. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah so. um, very historical. But um, yeah. basically, a statistician cut out the language of causality from a statistics, and it didn't mm. come back for many years. And it, and it is still looked down upon to use causal language in the statistics. Um, you can draw probabilities. You can run experiments and um, have like significance and probabilities. You cannot um, the, using causal uh, language is not um, is not approved still. Yeah. So, what's so, that uh, book called? The Judea Pearl. Uh, uh, the the product that he's written. Yeah. Uh, oh, wait, the the book itself. Oh, so is... he has a book called The Book of Why. It actually was published. Oh, the Book of Why. Okay. Yes, last year, and um, right. I highly. I'll post recommend... that on the show notes page. Oh, sounds yes. great. Sounds great. And I'll also send, um, uh, yeah, because uh, he has a link and on that he has a prologue on that. Uh, but I love this book in the sense that it's good both for technical and non-technical audience. It's so easy to read, but there, there are so many concepts that I'm um, grasping from that book that I have not grasped, grasped from any technical books or papers. That's that's good to know. Yeah. So uh, coming back to like machine learning or deep learning, which I know that you've looked into uh, quite a bit, you know, that's more well known to be under active development. You know, everybody is talking about the emerging field of AI. You get all these conferences, meetups, whatever. Like, how do you think that the rise in AI will affect our ability to draw causal inferences? You already talked about this a little bit, but yeah. Um, I think it has already to a to a great extent, and it's but it's just started. Um, an example is um, in econometrics, um, decision trees are now um, used for causal inferences. And Susan Athey, um, she's a very prominent uh, econometrician. She's a, a pioneer um, on that methodology and um, and uses uh, basically decision trees and random forest for causal inference. Um, another um, uh, place that uh, machine learning plays a big role in causal inference is actually in matching. Um, to create matches, we are basically estimating probabilities, and to estimate those probabilities, statisticians uh, historically use logistic regression. But logistic regression model cannot capture a lot of um, um, higher order relationships um, in the data. Sure. And now um, I see that actually it, it has been implemented in our pack in an R package uh, that gradient boosted methods are used um, to estimate those probabilities and then do the matching. So it, it has, and I, I feel like it has just started. There's a lot of room to, to still use. Um, you mentioned deep learning. Um, um, I do not know of any application of deep learning in causal inference yet. It might be out there. Uh, yeah, I haven't either, but it stands to reason that, uh, you know, project out however many years something like that will be used exactly I think. Yeah. yeah yeah all right so yeah let's uh we can start to wrap up it's been a fascinating you know discussion uh thanks for your time today yeah. um if you have any more uh materials uh let me know now or after the show and if someone wants to find you online you know where should they go 
Um, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> I'm on all sort of social media, actually, but uh, best way is LinkedIn. Uh, my first name, my last name, and I always check my messages, and I would love to hear from audience if they have any comments or questions on causal inference observational studies. Um, and, yeah. Fantastic. All right. Thanks a lot, Sharon. Yeah, thank you, Max. This was a great discussion. All right. On that note, I have a few fun things to mention. Uh, one is this: there's this meme that's been going around. You've probably seen it. It's been going around for probably like a decade. And that's that pirates prevent global warming. Have you heard of this? You have this one graph with global temperatures going down and another with pirates going up. So conclusion, bring back the pirates. Uh, and I should note that when you talk about history and you talk about global ecology and global weather, you know, there's no random control experiments, and there's often very little room for observational data that you could kind of match up. So that's why issues in these fields are so contentious. And that's, you know, economics is another one. And, you know, in writing alternative history, trying to determine, you know, what would have happened, it's re like if a Gavrilo Princip missed the Archduke back in 1914. Well, you wouldn't really have World War I starting at that time. How, how would the world be different? It's really based on, you know, informed fiction because we can't really know for sure. And one of my listeners sent me an amusing link with a bunch of correlated graphs. And, you know, these graphs, they all fit together quite neatly. So I like this stuff. Divorce rate in Maine versus per capita consumption of margarine. Turns out, those numbers match up. I wonder if someone will build a story around that. But mind you, this is not margarine in Maine. This is margarine in the whole U.S. So also, worldwide non-commercial space launches. You want more space launches? Turns out, positively correlates with sociology doctorates awarded on a yearly basis. So I'll link to that page. You know, what's going on here is that these are studies with few data points. You know, each year is a data point. And if you gather a whole slew of these studies, you can use an algorithm to kind of match them up and find the similar ones. So it's just by chance. So this kind of illustrates a lot and gives you an idea of how these things happen. All right. So next week, I'll have Aaron back on the program to talk about some of the exciting projects I have going on in the near future. And we'll follow up on some of our recent discussions. So have a great week, everyone. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power. She said, I don't care what you say. You're going to see me shine.